Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Let's, let's get back into Acts chapter 8, working our way down through here. All right. So the bottom line with Simon is that he was not a believer. He, and, and actually, and that's a good question, did he ever become a believer? He wasn't repentant. Well, it said he believed, you know, and was baptized. But again, does that necessarily make you a believer? No. He had to have them pray for him. He asked them to pray for him. Mm-hmm. Peter said, You're selling a gall of bitterness, the bond of iniquity. He wasn't. It doesn't say he was. He said he saw this. He didn't participate in it. And when he saw that through laying on Yeah. He never was. What's verse 13 saying? But understand, understand. You know, this is this is the crux here. This is the most important thing to understand. Just because somebody makes a profession, it doesn't make them a Christian. He believed the miracles. He and, and from from Philip's perspective, he didn't know the difference. All right. I mean, let's ask a question. You go go and watch your average Billy Graham crusade, and you see 500 people go forward. Are they all believers? No. Do they all become Christians? No. They all pray the prayer. They all sign the card. Are they all Christians? No. They're just coming down there. And why does the lifestyle change? The Holy, Spirit. Holy Spirit was in them. Look, folks, just because Simon, just because the Bible says Simon Magus seemed to believe doesn't mean he really believed. Just because Christ had a bunch of people following him around Palestine did not mean that they were his true disciples. What made the true disciple distinct from the false? The true disciple continued. And remember when the disciples left in, in John 8, Christ turns to Peter and says, you also going to leave? And Peter said, well, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. All right. And, and the warning to us here is this. To not take lightly this thing. The, the difficulty is when you come into, when you, when you buy into this, this three level, this three categories of believer model. All right. It's, it's, it's something that's nice for your conscience because you can categorize people as these carnal believers, like your kids. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Your kids. A lot of parents do that. Well, I remember when Johnny, you know, prayed to receive the Lord at Pat- Patmos. I know, well, that doesn't mean any anything. That doesn't, and I'll tell you, what's a good passage proving that? Revelation. Well, Revelation does, but how about Christ? One of the parables. What parable of Christ proves this? Well, there's two roads. Huh? Soils. Parable of the soils, right? Remember, the seed was broadcast out, 
And he said, what, what, was, what was the characteristic of the shallow soil? Well, these are those who receive the word with joy and spring, and spring up quickly, but there's no root. When the heat comes and the, the trouble come, they wither and die. Why? They were never rooted. It looked like they were, but they never were. All right? They never were. Because what 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 one of those soils represents true believers? Fruit. If there's no fruit, there's no belief. All right. And as when you preach and when you share the gospel, there are some it's it's like hitting a brick wall. You know, it just bounces off. Yeah, just yeah, it just bounces off. There's there's no. There, there's no response at all. That's the hard heart. That's the where the Satan snatches the seed away. And then you've got the 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 thorny mm -hmm. soil, you know, where the cares choke it out and it never grows because there's you know too much other stuff. And then you've got the shallow soil that it springs up quick and it looks like it's good. And you know this person comes down the aisle and they're bawling their eyes out and they pray the prayer and the next thing you know they're a Buddhist. All right. It doesn't make them a believer. The true believers are the ones who bear fruit. Mm -hmm. That's the only way to tell a believer. Well, why so many guys go to prison? Next thing you know, they belong to the Muslim group in prison. When they get out, they Muslim. They're part of the part of the deception. Yeah, but why not Baptists, Catholics, Episcopalians? Because the Broadway's a whole lot bigger than the narrow. Right. I just thought maybe the Muslims have greater access to Christians no. than Christians. No. I was going to ask you a question about verse 24. Mm -hmm. um, in here it said, you know, after Peter told him to stay in the park, 24 said that private acts of prayer, that they pray to the Lord that these things be removed, which he has spoken to Muslims. Isn't that repentance? Is it? I'm asking. I'm asking you to think about that. Is it necessarily? Yeah. I mean, I mean, did did Judas repent? Yes, he repented. Well, okay. There's repentance and there's repentance, just like there's belief and there's belief, right? You can repent in the sense that I got caught. I'm in trouble. I shouldn't have got caught. I feel bad about getting caught. But then there's a repentance saying, you know, I violated the law of God. I, I, it's me. This guy here was afraid of the consequences. He was afraid of the judgment. And by the way, just so you know, church history tells us, early church history tells us that he became a great enemy of the faith. This guy, Simon Magus. Eusebius, one of the one of the early church. Eusebius. He became a. I think it's Eusebius. Um, I don't know that for certain, but it tradition, early church history bears out that he became a great enemy and persecutor of Christianity. This Simon guy here. He he never did become a believer. All right. <laughs> and
And it says, when he had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. What did Peter and John understand now at this point? Samaritans were at least in, right? So at least now the you know the 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 uh, the, the the nationality is expanded from just Israel to at least the Samaritans, and you know they could probably you know justify it. Well, you know the Samaritans did have a little bit of background because they're partially Jew, you know. So they all right, okay, fine, you know we'll we'll put up with that, you know. And then verse 26, now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, arise and go down toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. Mm -hmm. And he rose and went and behold a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of Ethiopia, and she had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot. He was reading Isaiah the prophet. Mm -hmm. This is, huh? Where <laughs> and I, and he, it was at the Jerusalem Hyatt in the drawer. No, no, he 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 had come to Jerusalem. This is a man from Ethiopia. He was under the Queen of Ethiopia, so he was a very prominent um, official. Had come to Jerusalem and um, to worship. He come to the to. It doesn't say where or why he did. He just came to worship, and he had a copy of the Isaiah scroll. He was a very wealthy. Most most people did not have a copy of the scroll, right? So he had to be he had to have a little bit of money, and you know that because he was the head of he was the head of the IRS for Ethiopia. He was in charge of the treasury. All right, so he had a, you know, he probably didn't embezzle the money, but he was a wealthy noble person of his own accord, and he was reading this. Gospel, this uh, not gospel, but the book of Isaiah. And this is a divine appointment. God told Philip to go down, and Philip just sees this guy out on a chariot, and he goes up and asks them. Um, the Spirit said, go near and overtake this chariot. Walk up to the chariot. So here's a guy in the middle of the desert road, and Philip comes walking out of the desert. <laughs> Spirit says, go talk to that guy, and he does. Philip ran him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? The guy says, well, no, unless someone guides me. Do you understand what you're reading? And guess what he was reading? Isaiah 53. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before shear is silent, he opened on his mouth. His humiliation as justice was taken away and who declares generation of his life is taken from the earth. And he answered him, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or some other man? And of course, the story here is that Philip tells him who Jesus is, about Jesus. And what, is the, what does the Ethiopian eunuch do? He believes. And notice what it says here, if you believe with all your heart, you may. Now it says here, Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now this was a long conversation. Mm -hmm. And this goes back to, you know, one of the points we made earlier on. It is very unlikely to walk up to somebody who's never heard of who Jesus is, give them the four spiritual laws and they become a believer. Mm -hmm. It usually doesn't work that way. Because there has to be some context of who is Jesus, what did he do, why did he come, 
who is God? What is this? I mean, there's more than just knowing few, you know, force facts. Mm -hmm. All right. He's a proselyte in the sense that he was a he was a follower of Judaism. All right. Possibly. Um, he knew something about Judaism because he had come there to worship. The point is, this guy wasn't cold turkey when it came to to God. There, there was there was a there was a certain mass of knowledge that he had about God. All right, he did not have a true knowledge of God because Philip had to give him the gospel, but he did have a rudimentary understanding. And Philip gave him and explained to him the whole ministry of Christ. And the eunuch said, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Mm -hmm. Now, in the mind there, if you're being baptized, what are you doing? You're being submerged down in the water. You're being submerged in the water. But what is that? What's the significance of baptism? I'm identifying myself with right. the message mm -hmm. of this, of whatever this is. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a public right of identification of affirmation, of belonging or joining a group or a movement. And Philip said, if you believe by the heart, you can. There's nothing to prevent you from being baptized. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Notice what it means. It goes beyond, it's not just that statement. I mean, the Mormons believe that at face value, right? But it goes beyond all of truly who Jesus is, truly who God is. This is an encapsulation of the full gospel message. Mm -hmm. And he commanded the chariots to stand still, and both Philip and Eunuch went down the water, and he baptized them. So he baptized the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, tradition or, and history tells us that that this man was probably the head, or be, went, took the gospel message, Back to Ethiopia. Now you're getting in the uttermost part of the earth business, right? Yeah. He took it back in, in the Coptic church. We that that's a, a church down in Ethiopia. That this guy was probably the first convert and took the message of the gospel back to Ethiopia, and that began the Coptic church in Ethiopia. Coptic, C O P T I C. Yeah. That's just the, the name of the the the, um, the ethnic name, Coptic Church. Um, south. Yeah, south of Egypt. The area south of Egypt. All right. Sort of where modern Ethiopia is down. Yeah, I mean they they you know they this guy knew about Judaism, about Jews, about that. Um, it doesn't tell us where he found out about Judaism, but he, he knew about it. Possibly. Possibly. She heard about it. Um, and essentially, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so the eunuch saw him. He beamed him up in the Star Trek parlance. But Philip and Philip was found at Azotus and passing through he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. God transported him supernaturally back to another place. Now this is interesting here. All right, just just as an aside, there there is unfortunately growing in evangelical Christianity 
a notion that you can be a Christian without ever hearing the gospel. You can be saved. Um, some prominent um, evangelical type people are buying into this a little bit. No, Tony Evans. Um, yeah. 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 Um, the, the idea there is that if a pagan lives up to the light that they have, if they if they are in the middle of Bongo Bongo or wherever it is they find themselves, and they live up to the light they have, even if they have never heard the gospel, God's grace will cover them, provided they truly want to know God. And and there are those who want to make a an exception. You know, what about those in the middle of the darkest depths of Africa or Amazon jungle or whatever? They they live up to light. They're not evil evil. They live up to the light they have. And there's a there's a, a desire to make God's grace cover that. Well, what are you going to do with that passage of scripture that Christ is not going to return until everybody has the opportunity? That's that's a that's the that's the cities of Israel. Oh, the cities of Israel. Yeah. Oh, okay. No. That doesn't mean everybody. No. Okay. Does God owe everybody on the planet the gospel presentation? Yeah, the elect, God, God will bring the message. But here's the point. Here's the point I'm trying to get at here. All right, in a roundabout way. You could talk. Yeah, you do that. The point is, in now, there is no salvation outside of a presentation of who is Jesus. You can't be saved accidentally. You're not going to have somebody in Bongo Bongo die, find themselves in heaven, and be told they lucked out because they're one of the elect and they're in, even though they'd never heard about Christ. Because what did God do for this Ethiopian eunuch? He transported a guy across the known world to give this man the message. But he had already been in Jerusalem worshiping. He knew the Jew. He knew God. He knew God. He had been exposed to Judaism. He had not known who is Jesus. And what did God do? God made sure that somebody came and told him. Someone brought that question up about the Indians. All the Indians that lived in the United States. And they died. All the hundreds of thousands and millions of people that died before they were even settled. What, what happened with all those people? That's where they came up with the universal power. Yeah. There's, there's a desire to, to make God's grace cover them. Now, quite honestly, God can do whatever God wants to do, and how be it, far be it for me to tell him not to. But the Bible, the New Testament clearly see, teaches that faith comes by hearing, yeah. and hearing by the word of God. All right? And people say, well, it's not fair because they didn't hear. Look, God doesn't owe anybody a gospel presentation. But they will hear. No, they not necessarily. Will oh, hear. 
Yeah. yeah. And why is that? Why is that? Well, Romans Romans one tells us that that there was a time when maybe they knew God, but they glorified Him not as God. They suppressed the truth. And what may happen in society is the light goes out. Yeah. Right. If the truth is suppressed, the light will go out. That's part of God's judicial punishment for man. And the point is, God does not owe everybody a gospel presentation. No, and that, that goes back to Genesis. God says, I'm going to put up the 120 years, and after that, it's all over. We have this idea today that somehow God, for God to be fair, he owes everybody a chance. God owes nobody any chances. You know, now, now, what will be preached during the tribulation by the angel? The everlasting gospel. You say, well, okay, that's the good news. No, the everlasting gospel is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's coming. The king is coming and the proclamation is going to go out. All right. But what happens here, what you see happening here is God had a sovereign appointment yes. mm -hmm. with this Ethiopian eunuch, and he went out of his way to make sure that somebody was there to take the message. The Ethiopian eunuch wasn't just saved without hearing. You hear a message about Christ. Paul was not, Paul was, Paul was, um, Oh, yeah. But what did Paul hear? He heard the message. He did hear the message. And by the way, Paul knew what the message was. And then, and then he had to go to Simon and, you know, for three days. Okay. What they use that as the same as a person that never heard the gospel? No, I think there's a difference. Uh, John MacArthur wrote a real nice book, Safe in the Arms of Jesus, which is a good treatment of that whole subject. Of, yeah. Um, my understand my best understanding is that is that they are covered by God's electing grace. A child is, a baby who what about a baby who's never been born or was stillborn? All right. Um would it be just for God to send that child to reprobation when that child had no conscious understanding of even existence? No. All right. But they, but they, but they had a mind. They had the law of God. They, there, there comes a point when they can look up in the sky and know that there is a God. When they know that there's an innate sense of right and wrong. All right. It doesn't do them any good. All right. It condemns them. It doesn't save them. It condemns them. Romans one. It condemns them. It doesn't save them. All right. And that's a difficult. That that right there. That's one. Of, that's a very difficult, naughty. And that's something that you as a pastor face all the time. Some lady comes up and says, "You know, my three-year-old died. Is it in heaven or not?" Yes. I just You know. Um, you know that's a tough thing. And the best way to understand that is is you see the hint by David. He shall not come to me. I will go to him, to the child. 
there are indications in the Bible of blessed are the children. Okay? I, th I believe that God's sovereign grace, electing grace, covers that child. But there does come a point in the life of an individual where there does come a knowledge of right and wrong. There does come a knowledge of sin. There comes a knowledge of evil. And once that line is crossed, God's grace is not offered in that circumstance. I don't know where that line is. I can't. And you know what? Well, why do you think God didn't tell us that? You know, it would cheapen life, wouldn't it? Right, right. It's better for the you know, if God said, okay, when you're nine years old, if you if by nine you don't believe you're you know, if you're eight year old, we'll kill the kids, you know, at least they'll go to heaven. Right? Abortion's a good thing, right? Because they're sending them all to heaven. See? I mean, God doesn't tell us that because life is precious. It's in his hands. Um, I think he is just, he'll do the right thing. And someone had asked, you know, what, what, what is it about hell that makes it just for the sinner? Because the sinner has a knowledge of their sin. They have a conscious knowledge of their own evil. That is not the same for a child who never saw the light of day. There's no conscious knowledge of them having sinned. You know, it's all treated in that book. Go get that book and read it. He does a pretty good job. It's called Safe in the Arms of Jesus. It's by MacArthur. Don can get you a copy. Yeah. Safe in the Arms of Jesus. Um, but you, yeah. The eunuch and Simon uh, were, were both believers, they were both baptized, but for some reason the eunuch is saved. He received the Holy Spirit. And, yeah. And, and the difference... Where do you see he received the Holy Spirit? It doesn't say he received the Holy Spirit, not the eunuch. It doesn't say that. He was baptized. The Simon that was the magician. And that's a good point, because, you know... You know, I, you know, to be honest, I never thought of that before. Why do you have these two examples of men here, Simon and Ethiopian eunuch? And the, and the thing I think is trying to be brought out here is, number one, from the human perspective, it looked like both of them were believers and both of them were saved. But from the eternal perspective, what set them apart? God chose the eunuch and not the Simon. Simon chose himself. Simon, Simon, Simon was in this not for. This is the difference. Understand the difference here. What is the difference between the Ethiopian eunuch and Simon as it comes to the Word of God? Well, the eunuch was reading it. He was studying it. He wanted to understand it. Simon just had these guys show up doing all these wonders and miracles and wanting to get in on it. All right, there's no prior prep work in Simon's heart. And he just went along with the crowd because everybody was getting in on it. I might as well get on it and buy this trick. And after all, you know, they'll really help me when these guys leave town. I'll really be the big cheese around here. All right. And that was his mentality. It was, And, and you don't know that from a, just a surface reading. You see that in how they reacted 
to the to the circumstances. You see that in what happened afterwards. Afterwards, what happened to the Ethiopian eunuch? He went down and, and to Ethiopia. And here's the question: Why would God sovereignly reroute Philip several hundred miles out of his way to witness to somebody who was not going to believe? Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. No. All right. I'm going to ask that same question of Judas and uh, Judas and Peter. Judas did the same thing. He he betrayed uh, Christ, and Peter did too. He denied him three times. But but what happened to Peter? But but what I'm saying is the same type of thing. The heart. Peter was shattered over his 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 denial. Judas felt bad because he betrayed innocent blood. He felt bad, but he did not repent. He felt bad. He did the bad thing. And there's a difference. He went to, um, okay, Jesus had not yet went to the cross when Judas went to that, went to the priest, right? Yeah, Judas hung himself before Christ was crucified. Right, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So what Peter, I mean, Judas did was he went to the priest, which is who you go to when you sin in the Old Testament, right? Mm-hmm. No, he went to give the money back, blood money, because right, he see, he because he realized he had betrayed innocent blood. See, Judas's idea was, okay, they're going to put Christ in prison and slap him around a little bit, and you might as well get thirty bucks out of it. And then what happens? Well, here's the next thing to know: the guy's condemned to death. And he said, wait a minute, that wasn't supposed to happen. See, Judas did not think Christ was the Messiah. He, he, When Christ came into Jerusalem and did not throw the Romans out, did not take over, Judas is saying, wait a minute, I thought I, thought I was going to be sitting on a throne here. I thought I was going to be, you know, some big shot in the kingdom. And he's talking about dying on a cross. I'm out of here, man. I'm gone. Give me 30 bucks and I'm, I'm gone. You know, that was his mentality. He was never in it for Christ. He was in it for the money. And we know from John that he stole out of the treasury because he was the treasurer. Did he receive the Holy Spirit? No. Just never received the Holy Spirit? No. He was never a believer. It's not that he was a believer and he lost it. He never was. So when he blew on the disciples, they received the Holy Spirit. Judas wasn't there, I think, when that happened, if I remember right. Judas wasn't present at that time. Remember, Christ said, of those you've given me, I've lost none except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. Well, it's either he had it and he lost it. He never had it. He never had it because he didn't want it. He wanted the money. He wanted the power. He wanted the prestige. And when it didn't work out the way he thought it would be, he was ready to leave with what he could get. And what you see, the difference, the difference in these two men is what happened afterwards. The Ethiopian eunuch went back and history tells us that he was probably the founder of the Coptic church. Simon Magus became the great enemy of Christianity and a persecutor of Christians. 
interesting one. Is that the is that the same person that Paul referred to that he caused him much trouble? Mm. No. No, it's a different. It's a different one. Okay. And that's that. By the way, this this is one of the difficult things that you know over the years. You know, one of the sad things for me is I've been a Christian for you know almost forty years, yeah. and you see him come and go. Yeah. You see him come and go. You see, mm-hmm. you know, I know friends of mine. You know, when I was in high school, I was talking to one of the ladies that goes to this church. She and I were in the same youth group, and. Um, I was making a comment. I said, you go back. If I transport myself back then, back then I thought, you know, of the 20 kids in the youth group, there are 20 Christians. And as I look back now, if you got 10 of them, that's probably a pretty good, pretty good ratio. When you look back and you see the paths, it's sad to see them. One one person's never hasn't been in church for years. No interest in the things of God. Bitter, resentful, angry. He's coming back. Mm-hmm. How can you come back? You said your classmates. Okay, can you tell like, if a person is um, going to make it? No. Mm-hmm. No. God did not. You know how like it is when you're in college, they'll say, I can tell you ain't going to make it. No. Because here's the interesting thing. Here's the interesting thing. By the way, this this gal's name is Terry. Um, she uh, she and I were in the same youth group. And if you were to ask me back then, okay, Alan, take a take a list, take it out a sheet of paper. All right, and I want you to write down in order who you think are really believers to the ones you're not sure of at all, and most likely are not. Her name would have been number twenty. Of not being a believer. But she ended up leaving church. And she no, is she, the one. She, she is the one who turned out to be the strongest believer of all of them. The point is here. This goes back to the parable of the tares, right? Hey, let's go out and tear them up. Nope, because you don't know who's a hunk, of, who's a stalk of wheat, and who's a tear. You don't know that. That's not our position. I don't know. Don't know till the harvest comes. It is not. I can't look. I can't look. I hope all of you are Christians. But I don't see a halo. I don't see you glowing. You don't glow. I don't see it. I don't see an E on your forehead for elect. I don't know if you're. I, I can't. You, you can't tell that of me. You know, how do you know? Well, harvest time will know. That doesn't mean individually you can't know, right? Individually, you can be assured that you are a child of God. Pardon? You can see the fruit. That's 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 what gives it away. It's the fruit. It's godly fruit. I mean, I, you can you can make a ninety-nine point nine 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 assessment on people, but but ultimately, are there some people that you can tell? No. Pardon? That's 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 be, that's because of the teaching of that three categories there. 
You can be a carnal Christian. You can be you can take the Lord. You can be, take him as savior and live your own life, do your own thing. The Bible doesn't tell you that. The Bible says you're either a Christian or you're not. And if you're a Christian, you're a new creation in Christ. Old things are passed away. All things become new. It doesn't mean instant perfection. It doesn't mean you don't struggle with sin. But there is a struggle. There is an upward progression in your life. And if there's no upward progression, there is no seeking after godly things. There is no evidence of any fruit, even a shriveled, dried up grape somewhere. There's no indication that you're a believer. And the Bible warns, examine yourself whether you be in the faith. You know, and we can't tell as 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 we say, we can't tell. You know, people fault Philip say, well, Philip, you should have figured this guy out. Philip didn't know. He, he couldn't tell. Any more than preachers who, you know, one of the sad things as a pastor is that you can preach to a congregation all your life and somebody's there every every Sunday for 30 years and they die and go to hell. Because they never believe. Well, you can tell by a person's life. You can tell by the fruit of their life, and you can you can you can say that. You can certainly, I think, say that. But there are some people that, quite honestly, you can't tell. <laughs> You know, and it's probably, it probably wouldn't be a good thing to preach a sermon and say this guy's frying in hell right now. That's probably not a good way to to, to, to preach. Well, yeah, because the Pope, I love it, because the Pope, because the Pope did, Pope was. I, first of all, I didn't preach his his funeral. All right, that's one thing. But when the but the the pope the, the pope is a whole different animal here. He's he's in a different Mother class. Teresa, Mother Teresa, same way. Mother Teresa. Chapter nine. What do you have in chapter nine? Are we having a lot of fun here? Oh yeah. You know. Then Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples, the Lord went to the high priest and asked for letters. From the for the synagogues of Damascus, he found anywhere of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he goes and gets a um, arrest warrant from the chief muckety mucks down in Jerusalem to go to the synagogues throughout the countryside and drag the Christians back to Jerusalem bound. He's going to stamp out this Christianity thing if it kills him. He preached the word of God. He preached. Yeah. So here's here's the, here's Paul on his way to Damascus to go and drag the Christians back to Jerusalem, and guess who shows up? Now, for those of you who don't believe in divine election. You have a problem with this passage, right? At least you should. Why did God show up to Paul? Wanted to. Did Paul could Paul have said uh, no thanks? No. No, he couldn't, right? No. Irresistible grace. 
All right. And see, this goes back, you know, and we're never, we're never going to solve all of this this side of heaven. So don't even try. But, but when you look at Paul, when you look at Paul, what was Paul sincerely doing? He was sincerely doing what he thought was the right thing. He sincerely wanted to please God. His problem was he had the wrong answers. He needed a course correction. He needed, yeah. That's what he needed. And when God showed up, because Paul was so keyed in on doing the right thing, when Christ actually showed up and said, guess what? Immediately, what was Paul's response? He first, he said, yes, Lord. Then he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Who art thou, Lord? Now, this had, you know, when God shows up in his blazing glory, it does shake you up a little bit. And, of course, it would shake him up. And what was the response? I am Jesus whom you persecute. Wait a minute. I thought Paul was persecuting Christians. Do you understand that? Yes. When people persecute you, they better be persecuting Christ. Not because you're obnoxious. Okay. Not because you're obnoxious. And and it's an amazing thing when Christ is saying, I'm so I'm so connected to my church that when my church hurts, I hurt. That's interesting. And, and Christ confronts Paul very directly. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. What's the goads? What's the goads? Pricks. Well, none of, us, none of us in here, unfortunately... None of us in here are from an agrarian culture who understands this. But your grandpa would understand it. In those days, you plowed with oxen. And the oxen sometimes had a tendency to kick. Well, how do you keep them from kicking? Well, you put a really sharp stick right behind their leg. So if they decide to kick, they get a good poke. And they learn very quickly that if I kick, I get poked. It's painful. And it would stop kicking. Yeah. And what Jesus is telling Paul is saying, you're, Paul, uh, this is really interesting. Uh, you ever hear, you ever, anybody ever hear R.C. Sproul preach? R.C. Sproul. You know who R.C. Sproul is? He's a, he's a great preacher. He, I was at a sermon, I was at a place one time, he was preaching, and he walked up to the edge of the stage, and he, he was preaching on his past, and he, he said, what Christ is saying is, Paul, you dumb ox. Okay. You're stupider than an ox. Okay. An ox at least has enough sense not to kick when it's getting pricked. You haven't figured that out yet. You're no better than a dumb ox. That's great. Paul, what are you kicking against the pricks? You're not going to win. He didn't. It was ignorance. Paul said, I did it in ignorance. I was sincerely wrong. But here's the point. Paul was so, 
Paul was so um, committed to the truth that once he found the truth, he went all out. That's the difference between Paul and the Pharisee, the average run-of-the-mill Pharisee. So the average run-of-the-mill Pharisee didn't care what the truth was. They were more bound to their tradition. With Paul, Paul was bound to the truth. So when he, he found out that he was wrong, when this when he found out, I'm doing this, this is wrong, this is right, he immediately went over here. And, and by the way, that, that's one of the interesting things. As believers, folks, listen, you know, we all come from different religious backgrounds, different denominational backgrounds, but we should, there, one thing should be characteristic of all of us. We should be passionate for the truth. All we need to find out is what is the truth, and that's what I go for. And it doesn't matter if I have to change my opinion of something I believe my whole life or a tradition I've been. I am committed to the truth. There's no ego trip for me. And the problem is a lot of times people, you know, they, they, they how do you want to put it? They get so they get so bound in their traditions and their way of thinking that that they can't snap themselves away from that, even if what they're saying makes absolutely no sense and is actually foolish and idiotic. They will stick with it as a issue as an issue of pride. And as believers, we can't allow ourselves to do that. We need to be committed to the Bible as the Word of God. If it is true, I'm going to follow it. If I have to change some pet theology doctrine I've had for 20 years, I'll change it because I want to be more true than I want to have some of my, my ego stroked. All right. And, and, and one of the difficulties, unfortunately, that you find in a lot of people that are in cults and things like that, they are, they are, it's, it's an ego breaking thing to say, I've been wrong for 25 years. I mean, that's, that's tough. That's, that's hard to do. It's hard to, because our pride wants to, we want to hang on to what we believe in. We don't want to think that we're wrong. And the Bible says be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's not only, that's the word of God is the only thing that can do. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes you can have pastors that teach you wrong doctrine. I had to, I dealt with that. Mm -hmm. But I was a student and studied, so that's what helped me. Right. But he was teaching wrong doctrine in some areas. And, um, before I started studying, I believed it and believed it. But when I started studying and found out some of the stuff he was teaching, I'm not under that pastor, by the way, um, was incorrect. Then I had to, it's almost like a, what do you call it? A deprogram. Mm -hmm. um, I had to deprogram myself when I was, you know, at other churches. And it took a long, long time for me to uh, But But you're committed to the truth. Mm -hmm. yeah. You're committed to that. That's the point. That's that's the thing we all want. We want to be committed to the truth. All right. You remember what Pastor Walsh used to say? He'd, he'd get up there and he'd say, "Don't believe what I say. Take it home and read it yourself." You know? Yeah. Read it and study it. And that's what you need to do. And, and unfortunately, and here's here's what one way to tell a man of God, a godly pastor, from one that you need to run away from is when you confront him with the word of God, how does he respond? Mm -hmm. Is it one of humility, wanting to, or, or does he take it as a personal slap in the face that how dare you question the prophet of God? Mm -hmm. If you do, get away from that boy. You don't need to be around him. Yeah, then, then that's not a man of God. That is not, that is not someone 
who is exhibiting the characteristics of a man of God. Because one thing about a man of God, one thing about an elder is they are to be humble. Humble in the sense that they, they are committed to the truth. Even if it's something, if, the, if they are saying something wrong, they, they want to correct that because they want to be truthful. They want to say the truth. That's where their, their, their um, allegiance lies. Not in their own ego or their own little view of theology. You know, and, and there are preacher, preachers that get up and say, you know, well, you know, my, my conviction is blah, blah. And I say, well, that's fine. But, you know, what is the Bible? It doesn't matter what the Bible says. It's going to be this way around here. I'm the king and this is the way it is. And if you don't like it, you hit the door. I'm fine. I'll hit the door. I'll go somewhere else. Paul was one who was sincerely wrong. And when God showed up and Christ showed up and Paul saw him. And he had a vision of the risen Christ. And most likely Christ uh, was displaying the uh, marks of his crucifixion just so Paul would get it. Paul's immediate response say, Lord, yes. what will you have me to do? I think he did. He heard. He saw a blinding, blazing light. Mm -hmm. All right. And yeah, and it's it's quite... I guess I just don't. Yeah. I thought it was just a Well, that's what some. Yeah, that's some. I think. Now, now here's the thing. I had some. I had a guy who's in this church actually. He was a psychiatrist. I'm sorry. Um. Not like that, Seth. Seth is. Yeah, Seth, Seth perked right up. But this guy stood up and he was talking to a, a room full of pastors. And he said, man, he said, let's face it. He said, we're all in the ministry because of our deep ego need to be needed by people. Just like Paul had a deep ego need to be needed. I'm sitting there saying, did you read Acts 9? Is this, is this Paul? Did Paul have a deep ego need to be liked and loved by people? <laughs> he was going to kill them all right why is why was paul in the ministry to satisfy some deep personal ego need he was in the ministry because god showed up and says you are in the ministry now and paul's only response was lord what will you have me to do paul was drafted Paul was not a volunteer. Paul was always a deeply religious man. He was. He wanted to, wanted to be right by God. Yes. He said, I did it in ignorance. He right. said, I, I was zealous for God, but I, things I did, I did in ignorance. And God showed his mercy to me by giving me a chance of all people. God didn't know this to Paul, right? Yeah. And again, I don't believe Paul had a choice of saying, well, no, I don't really want to be the apostle to the Gentiles. I, I you know, he didn't have a choice anymore. Quite honestly, folks, listen, you didn't have a choice. There came a point in your life when when you didn't. The only choice you could have made was, yes, Lord. You're under the conviction of the God. God opened your hearts and your first response was, Lord, what will you have me to do? I sure hope you led my children right. No. I hope so too. 
I was worried about them for a long time. You know, their kids were in the bus ministry that I worked in for many years. Um, yeah, but but and here's the point. Here's another point here too. There are some who say, well, salvation is one of those things where you take Jesus as your savior, you're saved, but later on you get around to making him the Lord of your life. You know, um, look, that's a foreign concept in the Bible. Jesus is not saying, look, let's get, just take me as savior and later on we'll worry about this obedience thing. All right. There's, there's, that's not, that's not there. You take Jesus for all he is. Now you may not comprehend fully what it means, right? Right. When you became a Christian, none of us in here really knew the full implications of all that would mean. Any more than a kid who's 18 and goes down and signs up for the army has a complete understanding of what it means to be in the army. He finds that out in boot camp. All right. But there is a willingness. Right. To be part of that. And if you and, and the problem I have is if there are people, there are people that teach that that you can actually come to Christ, take him as your Lord and Savior. It's a free gift. It's grace of God. But. As soon as you start telling, well, now you got to obey, you're adding works. Well, no, wait a minute. Jesus is Lord. And when the rich young ruler came and said, what must I do to be saved? What did Christ tell him? Well, you know, just take me a savior. We're about the obedience thing later on. No, go sell everything. Remember those guys that came up and said, Lord, I'll follow you. He said, well, let's, uh, let me go home and say bye to mom and dad. No, can't do that. Let me go get my inheritance. So I'll let the dead bury the dead. If you put your hand in the plow and you look back, you're not, I don't want you. Now, you know, that's that's not the way to really get a lot of response at the altar, is it? But here's the point. You can't keep the elect from God. There's no price too heavy to pay. What is free will? You don't have a free will. So you don't have free will? Nope. So that's not biblical? Right. Oh. <laughs> now you gotta bring me some more TV. <laughs> that is not biblical. They don't have free no. will. That is choice. No, you can you can choose, <clears throat> but you do not have a free will. What that? What, what, what do you mean? Say that. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's like okay. Okay. Here, here's 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 the way to understand that. All right. Um, here's here's the short answer to that question. All right. You have you have the ability to choose. All right. But your choices are bound by your nature. All right. Your available options, the things you can choose, are bound by what you are. Okay. For example, can you choose to step outside of a spacecraft orbiting the Earth at 300 miles? Can you choose to do that? Yeah. You're dead, right? Because yeah. it's not within your nature to live in that environment. You're dead. All right. So are you, do you have perfect freedom to do and live anywhere you want? Well, no, you can't live underwater. You can't live in the outer space. Your, your choice between what you can do is bound by what you are. And in the moral sense, your choices are bound by what you are. All right. 
You following so far? All right. So let's take the average pagan. Let's go pick a pagan off the street and set him down and say, does that pagan have a completely free will to do anything he wants to do, he or she wants to do? No. What's the answer? No. No, they do not. All right. They can't do that. That's the physical aspect. But in the moral realm, can they choose to do the right thing for the right reason? No. They ha that's incapable. They, they're incapable of making that choice. Following it? No. They're incapable of making that choice because they are, uh, uh, what, what's it said in Romans? What, what's that? What's the Lord saying? Heart. They're, 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 they're lost. All right. Let's say let's let's simplify it. You can make you can make you have um you have four different choices you can make. A completely free moral agent can make any one of those six choices. All right. But you're not a free moral agent. Your will is bound in sin. Therefore, the ability to make choices A, B, and C, you wouldn't even think about it. You would not even consider those in the remote realm of possibility because it's not within your nature to even comprehend that those choices exist. All right. You come to me and you say, you know, one of you says, you know, hey, I got I got a lot of money. I'm going to take you out to dinner. Where do you want to go? You're not going to know the good place. Okay, I'll tell you what. I'm not going to choose. I'm not going to choose seafood. I'm not going to choose escargot, all right? I'm not going to choose rat burger, all right? Why? Because I'm not going to even think of those as remote possibilities of decisions, of choices, right? Is this making any, is this making any sense? I guess what's coming to my mind is you're talking to the law of consciousness. Your, your conscience, you, the pagan is bound by a fallen will, a sin nature that is bound by fallen will, fallen desires, fallen choices. The full range of possible choices is not open to them because they are incapable of even comprehending the right choices. All they can think about is wrong choices. That's the only thing they can even consider as possibilities. That's why... When, Christ, when the Bible says those who are outside of God cannot please God is because they don't have the ability to do the right thing for the right reason with the right motive and the right heart attitude. They can't because they don't even know that that's a possibility to them. All they can do is the wrong reason. Now, there are some choices down here that are better than others, right? Admittedly, they're, they're, you know, even a pagan understands, an unbeliever understands there are, there are good choices and bad choices, morally and things like that. Okay. Yeah, I got but they're not totally free. And that the point, the reason this is, this is so important is because of this. Those who have a will that is bound by sin cannot choose God. Right. You can't. So by Abraham, he came from the Arab Chaldeans and they were all pagans. All their gods were pagan gods, and he did not have the Holy Spirit living inside of him. 
So when when he met the Lord, how did he meet the Lord? Because God took the initiative. If God had not taken the initiative, Abraham would have still lived there and died there, and we wouldn't have known who he was. The Bible says you are, it says the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. You can't, you can't know them. You can't understand them. The only, the only being alive, the only human, that was a totally free moral agent was Adam and Eve. They could have chosen right? Because they were not bound by a fallen nature. They were not bound by corruption. But every one of us here, we are bound by the choices we, we have. If you if you give a pig the choice between, you know, sitting on a nice grassy knoll or wallowing in the mud, what's it going to do? Because that is its nature. That is what it is like. It doesn't even consider these others as remote possibilities. Is that making? Is that sort of making any yeah, sense? Your will is bound by your nature. Your nature is fallen and sinful. Therefore, before you can even choose God, God has to do something mm-hmm. to to shatter your darkness, or you won't believe because you can't believe because you don't want to believe. So, any time a person believes, it's because God has given them the ability. To you believe. bet. Yeah. yeah. And that's so when you get to heaven, you can't say, oh, how'd you get here? Oh, well, I believe. I no, you didn't choose. You got there because God chose you. Same way I did. Mm-hmm. God chose you. And that we don't like to hear that. There's a couple of good books, by the way. There's, there's a deep book called The Bondage of the Will. Called The Bondage of the Will by, by Martin Luther. And there's another book called The Freedom of the Will by Jonathan Edwards. Yeah. Now, yeah. Now, let me let me. They they they're good books. Now, here here's the thing. This is interesting. I, Jonathan Edwards is a tough. I'm telling you what. You you read a page a week. Out of Jonathan Edwards, because it's Are deep. You yeah, he's deep. He needs a dictionary. But no, you don't need a dictionary. You just need to think. Okay. <laughs> All right, it's tough for most Americans to do to think. Music videos are easier than than <laughs> books. Um, one that was out several years ago on, on discovering the will of God. But here, here's the here's the interesting thing that Jonathan Edwards pointed out. Let's see if I can get it right when it comes to this will thing. Jonathan Edwards basically said, how do, you, how do you put it? For you to be able to choose, you have to be able to choose to choose. Think about that. Before I can choose, I have to choose to choose. Well, where did I get the ability to choose to choose? You work it backwards, and there comes you got to work it back to a point where there is something that is not of your choice, right? Well, what was not of your choice? It's your fallen condition. That's a given. Now, within my fallen state, I can choose a bunch of different actions and activities. All right. It's like you come to me and you say, where do you want to go to dinner? I have to make a choice to choose to tell you 
where I can go to dinner. But my choice to choose is based on something outside of me. That's a real heavy philosophical thing to think through. All right. But we better. I didn't choose my. Yeah, that, that's a good example. I didn't choose my parents, right? So there's a choice that's outside of my my choice set. One of them was I was born to Alan and Charlotte Schaefer. All right. And so there is something that's a given there that was not under my control. So I don't have a complete free will to do anything I want to do. So that so when it comes to Paul here, Paul says, yes, Lord. His will, he was he was at that point transformed. God gave him the ability to see him for who he was. And Paul immediately responded, yes, Lord. What will you have me to do? And God told him, I'll tell you what I want. Jesus told him, I'll tell you what I want you to do. I want you to go into the city to a man. What is it, Simon? Ananias, I'm sorry. Ananias. And I want you to stay there for three days. And that's what Paul did. And guess what he's doing for three days? Well, one thing he couldn't see, right? He was blinded by the light. So if you're blinded by the light, what are you going to do? And what, did, what, and what, he was, what was going through his mind? What happened to him? Well, what happened to him, but he was probably going through his mind saying, where in the world did I go wrong on all of this? How did I come to the wrong answer? How did I get the wrong conclusion? You know, it's a whole complete reassessment. Yeah. A complete reassessment. You got time to think. Yeah. And it said there that, um, by the way, <laughs> this is a different Ananias. This Because the other Ananias is dead. This is a different one. Yeah. Um, it's a common name. It's like Joe or John or something like that. But now how did God, how did Christ or how did God have to prepare Ananias? He yeah, I mean, Paul was such a bad character, all right, that God had to go and supernaturally intercede to get a Christian to put up with him. Because most Christians would want to do what? Run the other way, right? And Ananias said, wait a minute, are, are you sure? <laughs> God, are you making a mistake? Are you sure about this? Yeah, and, and of course, and what do you see happening? You see Christ taking an active part in the conversion of this man. The greatest enemy of Christianity became the greatest proponent. And the only thing that, the way to turn that ship around is a face-to-face -face encounter with the living God. And it left such an impression on Paul that he never forgot it. He never forgot it. It was a powerful testimony. Yeah. And and the transformed life. And, you know, the problem is he had such a bad reputation that none of the Christians wanted to trust him. They thought he was a plant. Right. It took him a long time before he was trusted. In fact, who, who really brought Paul under his wing? Barnabas. Barnabas. Dead. Son of consolation. Now, where did we meet Barnabas before? He's the one that sold some land, right? And 
gave the money. He was from Crete. How long was? Um, I'm trying to remember the exact chronology here. Um, Paul's first missionary journey was around A.D. 46. Before Paul launched. Like I heard that Barnabas basically was with Paul because no one else, no one in the wanted to be with him, so he was with him for years span. Yeah, years. Um, the, the first missionary journey took place around A.D. 46, 47. We know that because A.D. 45 was the... Um, was the death of Agrippa. Remember when he died? He's eaten by worms. That was A.D. 45. And that's Acts chapter 12. Okay. Um, and in Acts chapter 13, we have the first missionary journey of Paul. So it's probably around A.D. 45, 46 is when that happened. And that's when Paul was really launched on his missionary career. So if it's A.D. 46, we got here about A.D. 33, somewhere around in there. So there's about a 12 to 13 year time frame between Paul's conversion and Paul's launching into the ministry. And we know from Galatians, there's at least three years he spent in Arabia. All right. So there was a good decade that probably he and Barnabas were together in the church in Antioch prior to him launching into the ministry. Um, the events here in Acts chapter 8, 9, 10, they're not too far after the crucifixion. They're not very long. It doesn't give us a date and a time and a place, but... Pardon? Uh, most likely he did not. He was, he was a preacher. He proclaimed in the church. He was a member of the church in Antioch of, Sy of Syria. All right. Um, he, he was a minister there. It doesn't say anything about him being an elder or a pastor or anything like that. He is separated. Remember, the Holy Spirit shows up and separated on me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work I've chosen in Acts 13. And that's when they're launched into their missionary journey, the first one. But it, was, it was a period of time. It was a prep time. You know, and um, it's interesting to see here the sovereignty of God as he intervenes. To bring Paul. Why did he choose Paul? Because he wanted to. He wanted to. <laughs> the, 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 he, Paul was his man. Paul was chosen. In fact, Paul said, I was separated from my mother's womb. The idea there, I was separated under the gospel of God from my mother's womb. It was part of God's sovereign plan from eternity past that Paul would be his emissary. And Paul had no choice. But Paul did choose God, because Paul was enabled to choose God. Paul was made of able to make the choice, and his choice was, yes, Lord. And there are mysteries here. You're not going to sort them out. Don't try to sort them out. Just go with what the scripture says. Yeah. You're getting some deep theology here. This is, this is not pure act stuff. This is theology underneath it, but it helps you understand what's going on here. And of course, here what we have is is Paul he, in in you know ten through nineteen. He is he is with the disciples in Damascus. He begins to preach Christ in the synagogue, and all of them are amazed. Saying, "Wait a minute, isn't this the guy that came to kill us?" And in fact, he was had to be let out of the city, right, because they wanted to kill him. The Jews were really upset that he had turned on them, so much so that they were going to kill him, and he had to be snuck out of the city. 
let him down through the wall in a large basket. Went back to Jerusalem and guess what? He couldn't join into the disciples because they were afraid of him. Because wait a minute, isn't this the guy that was there when Peter, when Stephen was stoned? Isn't the guy that threw uh, all these people in prison? Isn't the one that wanted to try and kill us all? And it said here, um, he spoke boldly in the name of Christ. Now, now listen here. You gotta understand. Most people say Paul was probably the brightest theologian of his time. He was probably the brightest theologian of that whole. The Judaism. If you want to say, okay, who's the number one Judaistic theologian prior to his conversion? It would have been Paul, and God chose him to become his messenger. So Paul brought a tremendous amount of intellectual power to the table. Of course, that's got to be energized by the Holy Spirit. But when Paul was able to dispute, Paul knew his stuff. Yes, And you know what really irritates someone who doesn't want to believe? When they're beat in their argument and they can't win. That really irritates them. Pardon? He probably knew four or five different languages. Well, we knew he knew Hebrew, he knew Latin, he knew Greek, he wrote in Greek. So those are three right there, you know. And that's something, you know, like in, in that kind of culture, you would know multiple languages. Here, you know, I can go a thousand miles in any direction and somebody speaks English. Try that in Europe and it doesn't work. You know, you got to know a couple of different languages over there. But then... You know, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to, to finish all of chapter 9. You can, you can do that. But you see here the conversion of this man. Chapter 10 next week, um, Cornelius. So, so let's close in. For any questions? Any? Until 12.30. All right. Father, thanks so much for this time. And I pray that you'd help us to remember what we discussed. Thank you for this uh, understanding, and I pray that you would help us apply it in our own lives. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.